0: Welcome to Live Yes with Arthritis from the Arthritis Foundation. You may have arthritis, but it doesn't have you. Here, you'll learn things that can help you improve your life and turn no into yes. This podcast is part of the Live Yes Arthritis Network, a growing community of people like you who really care about conquering arthritis once and for all. Our hosts are arthritis patients, Rebecca and Julie, and they're asking the questions you want answers to. Listen in.
1: Welcome to the Live Yes with Arthritis podcast. I'm Rebecca, an occupational therapist living with rheumatoid arthritis. And I'm Julie, a JA patient who's passionate about making sure all patients have a voice. On this episode of the Live Yes with Arthritis podcast, we're talking about all of those myths about arthritis out there. So many myths,
2: so little time. So today we're talking to Dr. Andrew Laster. He's a board-certified rheumatologist who's been seeing patients for 35 years. He also teaches medicine at Duke University and University of North Carolina.
1: So today we are talking about all of these myths that people think about when they think about arthritis.
2: That's right. We're talking with Dr. Laster today. We're so excited to have you here to help bust these myths and help us separate fact from fiction. Welcome to the podcast.
3: Great. Thank you. And I'm really looking forward to it.
2: Thanks. Yeah. So one of the myths that I want to kick us off in talking about is one of the most frustrating arthritis myths that I have heard from every which way throughout my life, which is cracking your knuckles gives you arthritis. Is this a myth? Is this a fact? Give it to us straight, Dr. Laster.
3: It is a myth. Uh, there's no evidence <laughs> that cracking your knuckles causes arthritis. Uh, some people are more prone to do that. Uh, and the sound is believed to be due to releasing of carbon dioxide when you crack the knuckles. But go ahead and crack. Uh, you really don't have anything to worry about there.
2: <laughs> Say goodbye to carbon dioxide.
1: Is that right. is that true for like, you know, like I will, twist and turn my back or my neck and it cracks. Is that the same?
3: Probably as well. You know, certainly if people are doing that, they may have some muscle tension and they're trying to, to relieve that. You know, we can talk later or, you know, about the importance of regular exercise and uh, range of motion. Uh, those are, are clearly critical. You know, we don't want people to be sedentary just sitting in a chair all day long. So uh, exercise is, is clearly good.
1: So, one of the ones that I know we want to talk about is that people are always concerned about if I take a medication, I will get the side effects they talk about. Yes. Mm-hmm.
3: Yeah, that, that's a real challenge. And I think that, you know, I've been in practice for over 30 years and it's been a real change. I think in the last decade, you know, more frequently I have people come in who are just totally convinced that if I take a drug, I'm just going to have to suffer through with, with a side effect. And they're really surprised to hear know that our goal is really to get people on medication. Not only they'll be effective, but you know it should be well tolerated, and you may not even know that you're taking the medication. I take care of patients who have arthritis and vasculitis, and then also care for people who have osteoporosis. And I think the the fear and the concern is probably greater for people uh, who have osteoporosis who are thinking about drugs and concerned uh, that they might cause problems with uh, their jaw or atypical fractures. Those are real problems. They do occur, but they're incredibly rare. There are certain biologics where there's a small risk for perforation of the bowel. Uh, and if you're an individual and you've had diverticulitis, if you're on non as well, and particularly if you've had perforation before, uh, we would eliminate that medication and it wouldn't be one that we would put you on. For people, for example, who are on one of the biologics, like one of the TNF inhibitors, again, there are rare side effects, demyelinating disease, uh, for example, I have a, a patient of mine who is a physician who needed to go on a drug, but he found out uh, he had been estranged from his brother but found out that he had MS. And so you know I think that that one of the, the jobs that, that we as physicians do is you really want to take a really careful history uh, to find out about uh, any prior medical problems and make sure that they might not potentially be problematic with medication we're putting people on.
2: That's a great tip. And I think what I really appreciate about that story is that it's not just something when you hear an arthritis myth that you should just kind of accept quietly.
3: Right. I think um, lots of people use Dr. Google and, and it's really <laughs> helpful. there are a lot of good things online. But I think, you know, the challenge is it's it's kind of an echo chamber. And and this all kind of boils down to what we call risk reward. Um, and so patients come in, and, and for for a number of people, they have a perception that the risk of the drug is so high um, and that it outweighs the benefit. And it, in fact, for many people, it's kind of the complete opposite. The benefit is great. The risk is real, but fairly small.
1: I'm on a biologic, and a lot of people are afraid to do that. But for me, the benefit's way
0: Mm -hmm. exceed
1: the risks. I I can function so much better. And I just try not to think about the small print (laughs) of the side (laughs) effects because I know that when I'm not on my biologic, I don't function as well. So it's hard. But like you said, I think the the point and the takeaway here is talk to your doctor.
3: Yeah, I, I would agree with that. I think the longer people are on a drug and once they've been through that initial phase, they get more comfortable with it. If individuals have a problem with the medication, uh, really important to alert their physician about it right away. We're talking about medication, but we're also talking about the amount of, of, your, of the drug you're taking or the dose. So, for example, we're all familiar with prednisone and side effects that can happen with prednisone, which is a steroid in terms of weight gain and bone thinning and cataracts, and thin skin and the like. Uh, but those side effects are usually related to people who are taking higher doses for a longer period of time. In contrast, if you were on just a very short course of prednisone for a flare of inflammatory arthritis, maybe you were taking 15 milligrams a day for a few days and you gradually tapered down over two weeks, the likelihood of a problem is is low. Um, It's the same for methotrexate, a really commonly used drug for treatment of rheumatoid arthritis and other types of inflammatory arthritis, The doses we use are are really small compared to what has been used for chemotherapy, you know, where the doses are 10 times or greater. So when you look in a package insert, you're going to hear and see about side effects like sores in the mouth and hair loss. And although those can happen again and frequently on the lower doses, they're typically referring to the, the higher doses that would be employed for treating cancer.
2: Well, that's an amazing myth that I think we can consider busted. And I think the best thing that we can take with us as we're separating fact from fiction when it comes to this one is, you have the power to ask your doctor about these side effects and about any side effects if you haven't read the fine print, um, and that they can have this conversation with you about treating your arthritis holistically to your whole person, um, and that that's not a scary scary conversation to have. So Great.
3: Thanks uh, so much on that one. Yeah. Yeah,
1: sure. So our next one that we want to ask is, if medications are available over-the-counter, then that must mean they're safe for everyone.
3: Unfortunately, people feel that if there's a drug available over-the-counter without a prescription, that it has to be safe. And we know for a number of drugs, that's not true. You know, one of the more common category of drugs are what are called non-steroidals, referred to as NSAIDs. These are non-prednisone anti-inflammatory drugs. Most people are familiar with two major um, nonsteroidals. One is ibuprofen uh, which is brand names are Advil and Motrin and others and then there is naproxen which is Aleve or Naproxen. Because they're available over the counter because people take them for pain they often feel that they're entirely safe. Um, These drugs that are available over the counter are just offered in a lower milligram amount than what we might normally prescribe. So. Advil, for example, is 200 milligrams of ibuprofen. If we write a script, we could write it for that, but there is a 400 or 600 and an 800 milligram ibuprofen as well. And these are medications where particularly if you're older, if you have problems with hypertension, uh, if you have impaired kidney function, uh, if you've had an MI, we have to be really, really cautious uh, about using them. Be cautious about using over-the-counters, talk to your doctor about them, make sure you know that they're not uh, conflicting with another drug that you might be on.
1: That is really good
3: information.
1: Can you, uh, for us, Doctor Laster, clarify what the MI means? I do, I know what it is, but I want you to explain it.
3: <laughs> MI stands for myocardial infarction, but but more commonly referred to as as a heart attack.
1: Just one more
2: follow up. I think that the the essence of this is really important. That you really want to be cautious and thoughtful whenever you're taking any therapy, but even those over the counter drugs you can be talking to your doctor about those as well.
3: Certainly, there are a number of medications that are touted uh, as having um, anti-inflammatory effects. They're natural um, and the like. There is a um, elderberry extract that has been popular lately that people have used to kind of boost their immune system. But in fact, there are cases reported of that actually triggering an autoimmune disease. I have one patient uh, who developed uh, lupus after going on this on oh. the sort of recommendation. Oh, boy. Care is 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 important. If you've got a a a physician following you, you definitely. And if you are on other drugs, you really want to go over those carefully with them.
1: It's supplements and vitamins and stuff like that as well. Julie and I, Julie and I were actually just talking about that. Mm -hmm. Um, We're trying to you know stay away from the colds and the flu everybody has, and whether or not echinacea and airborne and stuff like that is good. And I I had said I don't I can't take that stuff because I am on immunosuppressants. Is that right?
3: The biologics that, that people take that, that you're on, for example, uh, are kind of uh, lowering the flame. You know, imagine kind yeah. of a, a pot of water boiling over and the dial is turned all the way up to high. So the biologics are basically kind of turning the flame down so the water isn't boiling over, but it's not knocking out the pilot. We have lots of, of patients who, for example, are around individuals who have colds frequently, you know, preschool kindergarten teachers, and they generally don't get cold or flu any more frequently uh, than other individuals.
2: So let's move on to our next myth, and that is that wear and tear of arthritis can really only occur to you, or must occur to you, excuse me, as you age, that everybody's going to expect to get arthritis.
3: Yeah, so, so, so wear and tear arthritis, or you know what we refer to as osteoarthritis or degenerative joint disease, is probably One of the more common types and it's one that typically we see as we get older. And I won't uh, get into a definition of what is older or older but (laughs) it's a lot lot more birthdays. Turns out actually that um, there are individuals who can develop osteoarthritis at a relatively early age and we see this frequently um, in individuals as they get older with bony enlargement and pain but in some women in particular because this seems to occur more commonly in women than in men, you know, we've seen these early changes even in their 30s and early 40s. So this is a type of osteoarthritis that definitely has a, a genetic uh, hereditary component. The hip joint, for example, is one frequently affected with degenerative arthritis and sometimes that can occur early because uh, people are born with a certain differences in terms of how their hip was shaped so these are what we call congenital defects and then there's another condition that that's not as common but, but certainly of concern called avascular necrosis or ABN uh, in which blood flow to a bone like the hip or occasionally other joints can be interrupted and that can lead to death of the bone tissue uh, and then fairly rapid degeneration.
2: Can you comment on post traumatic osteoarthritis as well, related to an injury?
3: If you've had damage to a joint, you know, related to an injury, or you know, related as we said earlier on, you're just born with, with, with a problem. Um, that can also lead to early degenerative changes. This is usually in weight bearing joints, uh, knees and ankles, for example, that may have been injured, um, may make uh, individuals more likely to develop early degenerative changes.
1: And what about weight? How does weight play a role with osteoarthritis?
3: Yeah. So if you're overweight um, and you have problems with a knee or hip or ankle or your foot, the the big toe, for example, you know, adding additional weight, uh, that impact-bearing weight loading can um, hasten degenerative changes.
2: Okay. So myth busted. Yeah.
3: Mm-hmm. There's another <laughs> one.
2: Yeah, we're, we're knocking them down. We're knocking, we're
3: them, knocking them,
1: down. them down. Well, here's the next one. It's not possible to have psoriatic arthritis if I don't have psoriasis.
3: So this is one that we we do hear about, and it comes up a lot because psoriatic arthritis is actually fairly common, and it can uh, present in different forms. So strictly speaking, you can actually have psoriatic arthritis without having psoriasis without ever having psoriasis. And people say, well, how can that be? What we might see, you know, on exam is just a tiny patch of psoriasis. It might be on the belly button um, and you wouldn't see it unless you had the patient put a gown on and you were looking for it. It might just be on their eyelid and you'd only see it when the patient was lying down um, because of, of the angle. Or they might have some very subtle nail pitting the amount of skin and nail involvement doesn't correlate with the amount of joint involvement. So it can be challenging to diagnose. People think they don't have it, but on careful exam, you know, you might find a small patch. Commonly, as you know, it can involve on the elbows or, or the knees, the scalp, often areas of, of trauma. There are a number of individuals who actually develop, not a large number, but who actually develop psoriatic arthritis before the skin disease. More commonly, there is a lag of about eight to nine years where you first develop skin involvement and then develop your psoriatic arthritis later on.
1: I had no idea. I didn't know that. I always thought that there had to be some psoriasis involvement.
2: The image of you playing kind of doctor detective and Mm -hmm. looking for the eyelid patch or the belly button patch of psoriasis (laughs) is very interesting to me.
3: That's what rheumatologists do. We are the Sherlock Holmes of internal medicine. When when people can't figure out something, it often falls in in the hands of rheumatologists to figure out what it might be.
2: That's so true. Our scientific sleuths. I love it. (laughs) Well, let's move on to our next myth, which is about gout. Can gout be cured by diet alone?
3: So diet clearly plays an important role. We do talk to people about diet and the importance of avoiding uh, foods and the like that are high in purines. Purines uh, are broken down to form uh, uric acid, which leads to the gouty attacks. So, for example, shellfish, uh, shrimp, scallops, oysters, clams—all of those are, are fairly high in purines and can, you know, increase the uric acid level and lead to gout. Uh, alcohol, especially beer, can do it. Uh, organ meats like liver or sweetbread, wild game um is not uh, an uncommon huh. reason why urate levels can be elevated so people who hunt and and eat you know deer um, I have a patient with gout who you know also has high blood pressure and lipids and he had gone through major dietary changes but he was adamant he said doc I'm not giving up my deer sausage that's what? one thing you're not going to take away from me. you're going to have to pry it away from <laughs> No
1: brown so, beers
3: yeah and then fructose corn syrup, uh, which is found in a variety of drinks, also can uh, trigger gout. And you know more esoteric things like anchovies and sardines also can can do it. So diet clearly can can play a role, uh, not not the only thing. Obesity uh, can play a role. Uh, there are certain medical conditions that can do it. There are even drugs that people may not be aware that they're they're aware they're taking them, but not aware that it can trigger gout. So. Again, another reason why you want to talk to your doctor and and have them go over carefully your medications, your history, to make sure there aren't other factors that might trigger that.
2: Yeah, your medications, your history, and anything that doesn't have anything to do with your arthritis, too, making sure that they really understand all of those other components of your care. So, Dr. Laster, when it comes to gout, is that something that can just be cured by diet and willpower?
3: That's a great question. The truth is, actually, that uh, gout is often due to Uh, underlying um, conditions that are genetic that you would inherit from your parents. Uh, And so a lot of cases of gout are actually due to uh, individuals who lack an enzyme uh, that prevents them from breaking down uric acid or they have problems excreting uric acid through the kidney. So that leads to a buildup of uric acid or urate in the body when it reaches a certain level it then can precipitate out uh, into joints and soft tissue, um, they crystallize, and that can trigger inflammation when certain cells, granulocytes, try to engulf them. Right? So that's often what leads to these acute gouty attacks. So certainly food can play a role and can elevate the uric acid level, but uh, for many individuals um, it's a genetic susceptibility to gout.
1: So here's another one. That uh, we will ask about because I am an occupational therapist. So a myth is always the purpose of occupational therapy is to help people do their jobs. It's occupational,
3: right? Um, you can probably address address that one better than me, but but no, that's that's not correct. So so clearly. You know important uh, in terms of making sure that just kind of normal daily movement and activity the things that you do at home the normal activities of daily living you can do and and often occupational therapists can kind of help address things that one could do in terms of movement Um, you've got back pain this is the way you should be lifting something we we all work from from the minute we get up whether you have a job you're getting paid for or whether you're at home taking care of the kids. So I think it goes far beyond just uh, earning a wage in terms of the benefit of occupational therapy.
1: Yeah, we help you be able to move and do the things that you want to do that occupy your time. That's where the occupation comes in. Occupying your time. Yeah, that's great. So that includes sleep, that includes brushing your teeth, it includes housework, it includes your job, all kinds of stuff. So thank you for helping dispel that. It doesn't come just from the OT. (laughs) (laughs) Rebecca's been waiting on the edge
3: of her seat to talk about this myth
1: the whole time.
3: Somehow I knew you were going to try to get that one (laughs) So, Julie, you probably have a favorite myth. We're waiting for yours.
2: (laughs) Well, my favorite myth, maybe it's not my favorite myth, but certainly one where I want to add to our conversation today is about back pain. I hear people say all the time, oh, I have back pain, so I have arthritis. Is that always true?
3: No, it's not. And, and that's a great myth to talk about. There are lots of different reasons for back pain. Now, certainly uh, arthritis, genitive joint disease of the vertebrae um, can cause back pain, but we know that back pain can be due to entrapment of nerves or muscle spasm uh, in the back, sciatica, for example. Um, have frequently, people come and they say, well, I have uh, pain in my hip, and, and actually when people have true hip joint pain it's usually in their groin and inner thigh most people kind of refer to their hip as in their buttock area usually that's not the hip it's more often related to the back but so you clearly can have back pain for many reasons other than just having arthritis the other one and one i see not uncommonly relates to uh, fragile bones and osteoporosis people can develop fractures of their spine of the vertebra um, often with trivial movement uh, bending down to get clothes out of the dryer Uh, they're in the car and they turn around to lift their grandchild out of the back seat and they develop sudden pain Um, because back pain is so common they may go to a doctor and an x-ray wouldn't be obtained because so many people have mechanical back pain you know related to a disc or degenerative changes so we see people who've had Uh, for tuber fractures that go undiagnosed for long periods of time, sometimes never even having had an x-ray. So I think that you know we need to really appreciate how many different reasons there are for back pain and think about things other than just arthritis.
2: Wow. Do you have tips for patients who are experiencing back pain to advocate for themselves and make sure that they're getting the diagnosis that they have?
3: There, There are, I think, warning signs where you should seek medical care immediately so if you're having you know pain going down your leg particularly if you have numbness of a part of your leg or your foot that doesn't go away you know if you find that your leg is weak that you've got foot drop clearly you know those are are reasons why you would be important to go to a doctor because you may be having ongoing neurologic damage that if you don't work on that quickly enough to correct that could be uh, permanent more than 20 percent of the population has had back pain in the past and for a number of people it, it can be chronic but acute onset of back pain that you've not had before you know um, clearly um, needs to be evaluated in, in many individuals particularly if they're having some uh, neurologic symptoms
2: so key takeaway is go to a doctor and find out ask the question
3: if you've had chronic back pain that fails to get better with conservative you know, treatment ice to the back, use of a, a pain medication, uh, low doses of a nonsteroidal. If the pain is not going away, um, you need to to seek care. When we think about back pain, we kind of put it into two buckets: the mechanical back pain that we've been talking about, you know, uh, is really fairly common. But but we recognize that there is what we call inflammatory back pain, and that's a very different pain related to often systemic arthritis, like ankylosing spondylitis, or you can see arthritis in the back from psoriasis or inflammatory bowel disease. In contrast, those individuals typically will wake up early with back pain, uh, and when they get up and move about, their pain gets better. That's in contrast to individuals with mechanical back pain where rest will actually help it, uh, and they have pain with movement. So It's a complicated field, and there are lots of reasons for back pain. And, and clearly, if you've got acute back pain, if you have neurologic changes, If you've had chronic pain that isn't getting
0: better, all of those are important reasons why you should go to your doctor. Your insights into what it's like living with arthritis can make a life-changing difference for yourself and others. Help choose topics for future podcast episodes and change the future of arthritis resources and research. Take just a few minutes to make a change. Arthritis.org slash insights.
1: One more thing I want you to maybe answer. So when most people think of arthritis, Dr.
3: Laster, they yeah. think
1: it's one disease.
3: Right? And we know it's not.
1: <laughs>
3: um, and, and that's what what rheumatologists are involved in. So there, you know, it said there are over a hundred different types of arthritis. Just imagine your local shopping mall. Uh, that's arthritis, and within it there are many different shops. Uh, and so there are many different types of arthritis. They behave differently. Uh, medications um, that work for one may not work for another. So uh, really is key. You know, one of the most important things is try to determine the type of arthritis an individual has. Once you know that, then you have a much better feel of what treatment will be involved. Uh, so I think that you know anybody who's had chronic joint pain that's going on for six weeks or longer, if you have sudden pain and swelling and redness of a joint, um, and frequently that can be due to actually a true infection in the joint that can be a very serious problem. And for a number of these conditions, the primary care doctor may be able to you know, identify what the issue is and treat it appropriately. But if they have questions where they identify an individual who has rheumatoid arthritis and then treatment becomes more complex, they'll often then go on and uh, refer to a rheumatologist for further treatment
1: people don't realize that arthritis is more than just one thing, and arthritis literally means joint inflammation.
3: Right, and arthritis occurs in young people. Yes. I think people often think about this as just occurring in people who get older. Different types occur at any age, so for a lot of the autoimmune diseases, rheumatoid arthritis and lupus, for example, they, you know, often can occur in people in their teens, 20s, or 30s, and certainly they can occur as, as people get older, but so In general, I think that's another myth. People think that if you're caring for arthritis as a physician, you must be seeing older individuals when that's actually usually not entirely true.
2: Dr. Laster, you beat me to my favorite myth, which is kids can't get arthritis.
3: (laughs) Right. Kids do develop arthritis. And in fact, there's an entire specialty, pediatric rheumatology, devoted to caring for infants and and, uh, children who have arthritis. And this can be incredibly challenging. So uh, clearly for individuals, kids who have arthritis inflammatory problems, uh, seeking out the care of a pediatric rheumatologist is the way to go.
2: Absolutely. I think pediatric rheumatologists are some of the best people on the planet, but so too are. All rheumatologists. <laughs> yes.
3: Right, well, we're showing a lot of love for rheumatology. Yeah, today. yeah, yeah. we sure yeah. are. Our, Our M- favorite N- doctor T-T- detectives. N M- T- M- T- O T. T Ot. Yes. yes. Go. yes.
1: Go. Gotta got feel the love all around. Um, <laughs> the key takeaways that you would say from all of this conversation about what's fact and what's fiction would be what?
3: Well, it's great. I, I really enjoyed uh, talking. So I think that the key takeaways here are you know number one arthritis is complicated right and it's hard often for people to figure out what they have uh, and what to do about it and and so you should not feel uncomfortable about seeking medical care whether it's through your primary care provider or for you know through a rheumatologist or orthopedist and there are lots of medications that are out there that truly work we've not talked a lot about the biologics but You know, certainly they came into play uh, in the late 1990s, early 2000s, and they have been life-changing for patients. Far fewer individuals requiring joint replacement, developing joint damage, allowing people to work out, actively run marathons, tend their farm, whatever heavy physical labor they're doing. The advances have been dramatic, and and there's a lot that we can do now. Uh, Arthritis doesn't have to be. Um, a sentence, you know, where where people are limited. Definitely, if you have any type of chronic problem, uh, also acute problems, those are the types of things that, that should you should go out and seek medical care for.
2: This has been such an interesting conversation. We really appreciate your time.
0: Thanks again. Thanks for having me.
2: Thanks so much. Thanks.
0: This Live Yes with Arthritis podcast was brought to you by the trusted experts of the Arthritis Foundation. We're bringing together leaders in the arthritis community to help you make a difference in your own life in ways that make sense. You may have arthritis, but it doesn't have you. The Arthritis Foundation would like to thank Janssen and Sanofi Genzyme Regeneron for sponsoring today's episode. Go to arthritis.org slash live yes podcast for episodes and show notes and stay in touch.